Hi, my name is Madison Guerin, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Breaking Down International Relations. Today, we're going to be focusing on identity and rights. Now, let's take a moment and all take an introspective look. We can see the poignant moments in our lives that have shaped our behavior and our choices. What if we expand this concept and apply it to leaders in the state? Each state and each different leader has changed its policies based on their identity, and we're going to get to this later on. The classic definition of an international regime is an emblematic expression of this way of thinking, as it refers to, quote, principles, norms, rules, and procedures around which actors' expectations converge on an any given issue area, unquote. Identity is the source of beliefs, othering, and preferences, but it doesn't stop there. The impacts of identity can be seen in all of the subfields of international relations, economic relations, war, international agreements and law, transnational challenges, theories of hegemony, and of course, change. We will dive into each of these subtopics and show how, how identity has shaped them. But first, I have to explain what identity and rights really mean to the field of IR. Identity is split into nine subgroups, cosmopolitan, regional, state, national, ethnic, gender, race, class, and finally religion. Rights emerge off of these and are, quote, identity-based claims to power, privilege, and or protection, unquote. To organize these, I use the analogy of a bus. Imagine you're at the wheel, and each of these identities are passengers arguing constantly over who gets to drive. I find nationalism, ethnicity, and religion to be the factors that play into global politics the most in the current day. Quote, Traditional international relations theory provides little guidance for those needing to understand the interplay of religion and politics in a global setting, unquote. And in the decades following 9-11, there's been a global resurgence in religion. Now, if we change the field of IR to incorporate more normative stances, we will be solving more issues and forming more predictive studies. Now, looking at realism, this is, quote, an axiomatic that way that a rational actor cares first and foremost about his or her physical existence and that among the many competing cares and values, survival is the most important. We're going to disprove this because identity's capability to provoke, promote self-sacrifice within power clashes overwhelms survival tendencies. Realism cannot imagine that a state or individual would place values as head of physical existence. We will see that survival cedes its role to the power of values in every part of international relations. Let's start with the intersection of identity and economic relations. As the runner-up in importance in my mind, I think we should tackle this subject. The only reason economic relations doesn't take precedence over identity in my perspective is because of its failure to consider identity and normative influences. In the field, there is currently a problem finding the missing middle between quantitative analysis and normative influences. This is the root of its issues in creating excellent predictive studies. The field is known as Ratiosaurus Rex in in the American school because it's a field solely based on data. Benjamin Cohen describes the field at this point best. Quote, 
if knowledge is measured by our ability to make definitive statements, to generalize without fear of dispute, the field's success may be rated as negligible at best, unquote. The missing middle in international political economy includes critical theory and postmodernist ideas about non-state actors and especially partisanship. Part of the missing minimal middle can be seen in policy preferences, including sanctions and embargoes. Us, as young scholars of international relations, can critically analyze our choices of trade policies. We work in our own self-interest more often than not, which can be demonstrated by the effects of lobbying. Pressure politics is pervasive, especially in the democratic system, as shown by lobbying by the NRA, Planned Parenthood, and many other groups. It has been seen to be effect in the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act in the early 20th century and the continued support of evangelical Christianity and intervention in the Middle East. Sanctions and embargoes hurt the economies of imposed states as well as the ones doing the imposing. They are perpetrated because of perceived ideological violations and moral violations. The economy is incredibly important and funding is critical to states and non-state actors, meaning their interests and preferences drive their economic decisions and sometimes supersede their survival tendencies. Moving on to war and peace, the most obvious example that comes to mind because the concept of just war. The concept of just war is truly held in the eye of the beholder and in the writers of history. The winners of wars also win the power to justify their actions. When we move from times to peace and war, grievances and cleavages within states lead to wars, often backed by their ideologies. We can see this in the contestations over the Dome of the Rock being a religious contestation, Northern Ireland being religious, political, and nationalistic, and the contestation of Cyprus between Greece and Turkey being a national and ethnic issue. We can also see the influences of identity and alliances. They are often made between like-minded nation states, let's consider NATO and the countries that make up the EU, and are founded on the same democratic and principled beliefs which make them compatible for wartime and peacetime alliances. After a quick water break, let's again move on to how identity drives international law and agreements. We're going to combine this section with transnational challenges because they often intersect. Morgenthau argued that the great majority of the rules of national law are observed by most nations because it is in their best interest, and we're going to see this reoccur. For international agreements to work, people must comply to its demands. And this only happens when obligations become societal norms, known as the process of opinio juris. In the U.S., this is typically through the process of ratification because it applies enforcement and accountability through checks and balances. Now, transnational challenges involve states and non-state actors, which are founded on either networks or formal organizations following principled beliefs or self-interested ones. Our beliefs shape action and inaction, especially in challenges that face the global community. The issues with migration, climate change, and the response to the COVID-19 pandemic illustrate the negative impact of such identities clashing. The interaction of sovereignty and human rights comes to a head in border crises. These two ideals have conflicting interests, and so liberal states are often caught at a terrible crossroads. 
sovereignty now more often than not supersedes human rights considerations. Quote, the preeminent focus on control coincides with a fading support for new multilateral norms relating to migrants' human rights, unquote. Currently, most states are reluctant to go beyond lip service and are fewer willing to, categor to categorically ratify principles of human rights. Quote, the most salient example of this reluctance is the fact that no single Western immigration country has hitherto agreed to ratify the Committee on Migrant Workers, unquote. Migration is a social and moral problem of identity and human rights, from tear gas and water cannons at the Polish border to conditions in migrant camps along Turkey's to American holding facilities separating families. The main question coming from the constructivist liberal side of migration is, do wealthier countries have a responsibility to aid the causes of migration as well as migrants themselves? The transnational challenge of pandemics has become to the forefront of everyone's mind now. The politicization of vaccines has become a value issue of freedom that has surmounted the beneficial survival benefits that they provide. This distribution of vaccines has also been completely skewed toward majority white and wealthy countries, showing the inequity and in cosmopolitan rights to a vaccine. We can also see the perpetration of othering through the ostracization and attacks on Asian Americans. The spread of racial distrust and hate coincides with the virus. The term China virus, Wuhan virus, have created Asian American and Asian and Pacific Islander hate throughout the world. Now, let's move on to our final topic, empire and hegemony. The foundation for theories of hegemony are founded in the British and American identities of being world powers. Amer the American mindset is formed by its theory of dominance. According to David Lake, quote, great power politics have always been at the center of the discipline of international relations, at least as developed and taught in the universities and classrooms of the great powers themselves, unquote. Americans and British have believed that they have taken up the mantle of international order, and so these hegemons throughout history have tried to shape the world to their personal liking. Their values rebuild the world order, especially with the propagation of Western ideals. These coincide with dominance theories of imperialism and colonialism, founded in the racist ideals of the white man's burden, manifest destiny, and white Christian values of supremacy. Currently, the idea of the free world is inherently Western, emerging from this is free trade and the Bretton Woods system. The United States' choice to propagate free trade is biased towards their self-interest and comes from their belief in hegemony. The Washington Consensus also emerges from this as well. The idea of empires, the idea of America being an empire and the Brits being an empire, is a social construct based in the discursive power framing and propaganda and coercion. Quote, the recognition that great power hierarchies and all international structures are not simply facts defined by material capabilities, but rather social constructs produced by the strategies adopted by the great powers themselves, unquote, dissolves the concept of American hegemony. State and non-state actors, identity and perspectives on rights dictates its choices in all fields. Self-interest dominates in international relations. 
American nation-state identity is focused on world dominance and an imperial Mayan state. Their claim to power is an essential part of their identity, as we see in our analysis of empire and hegemony. In conclusion, we are inherently social beings who are productions of our culture and society. We use control and power to divide the world into seemingly meaningful categories of civilization and not civilization. Our state's identity shape our foreign policy. Our national identity shapes how we interact with the world. Our ethnic and racial identities have always been used as an othering technique. We have a portfolio of identities, as I say this world in many times, that influence every decision that we make, including every single change we make in the world. From the dissolving of the USSR to the transition of power in a state between Trump and Biden or Obama and Trump, change is a fundamental part of our mindset and our identity.